Let's take your Bibles with me. Let's have them open to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and beginning in verse 21. Our text for us this morning will be verses 21 down through verse 25. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 35. The Word of God reads, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. He laid hands on him. He took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. And he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, They were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay All that was due to him. Verse 35. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. This is the word of God. The title of the message this morning is the doctrine of forgiveness. Or in keeping with our sermon series on Matthew chapter 18, if you remember, The context of this passage is the little ones of Christ, the little ones of Christ. So we could also name it forgiving God's little ones, the doctrine of forgiveness. As we look into the word of God this morning, I want you to hear a testimony, a biography from history. Bear with me and listen carefully. If I were to say the name Corey Ten Boom, some of you would recognize that name, but many of you may not recognize the name of Corey Ten Boom. So just by way of introduction, Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were two of the many Jews, millions of Jews, who were taken into concentration camps, who found themselves having survived and having opportunities to give witness and testimony to their surviving of those camps. I want you to hear very carefully the following from her testimony. She writes this, Corey Ten Boom says, It was in a church in Munich, that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. 
People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947, so people stood up in silence and began to leave, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form just ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, oh how thin you were. Betsy being her sister, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled with my pocketbook rather than to take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt it was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from you as well. Fraulein, and again the hand came out, will you forgive me? As I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase how her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. 
those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness, clutching my heart. But forgiveness was not an emotion. I knew it too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did it, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this feeling of warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing me to flooding tears. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did there in that very moment. Well, we live in an age not only of personal testimony. No doubt, as I read that example, I have no doubt there are those of you in the congregation this morning who have been through where others would consider it minor or major, it matters not, great hurt, great devastation. Situational things hurtful things that, as the world would put it, have been scars upon you in your life. We certainly live in a day and age that is known as the age of rage. Our age is one of what we call now, in a formulaic heading, cancel culture. In fact, the world is crumbling under this age of rage or this cancel culture, even to such where New York Times writer Elizabeth Brunig said this. She wrote, There is something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. Well, as we think about forgiveness this morning here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, one thing we must recognize and acknowledge is that forgiveness is not a natural, normal thing to our natural man. Forgiveness, we could say, has fallen on hard times. In fact, forgiveness may be the hardest thing that we give to someone else. But brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me this morning. If you are a follower of Christ, forgiveness is a part of our discipleship. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ cried out to his Father as he was on the cross, and he said these words, Father, forgive them, For they do not know what they are doing. As Jesus was dying, some of the last words that he ever offered up was that the Father forgive those who are hurting him. Following in the Lord's example, one of the first deacons of the church, the early church named Stephen, in Acts chapter 7 verse 60, as he is being stoned to death, offered up, A verbal prayer saying, Lord, do not hold this sin to their charge, to their account. As we heard in the scripture reading this morning, Proverbs 19 verse 11 says this, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Matthew chapter 18 in our text this morning, beginning in verse 21, is not the first time that Jesus has broached this idea or subject of forgiveness. 
And just by way of remembrance, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, if you remember, one of the headings in the Lord's Prayer was this, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Verse 14 of chapter 6, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So as Peter comes to Jesus in verse 21, he knows the teaching of Christ. He knows what Jesus has already said on this subject. And remember the context here is the little ones of Christ. We've just most recently, as we've looked in this chapter, looked at the discipline of God's little ones. And it's almost as if Peter is worried about being defrauded. Peter comes, point number one this morning in our text is the inquiry. Number one, the inquiry. In verse 21, the text tells us, then Peter came to him out of all the disciples with this, this question. Now, a couple of things here. We need to commend Peter. Peter regularly is the one asking the questions. Questions are good. We appreciate Peter and his questions. He comes as the spokesman of the apostles. And when puzzled, Peter did not sit on his quandary. He did not hesitate to voice his perplexity to Christ. So let's commend Peter on this point. He came to the right person. Amen? Whenever you have a question, whenever you're worried about what does the text mean, what does the Word of God say, how do we truly understand that, always, friends, go to Christ. And you will never go wrong doing that. But he asks a question that's a little bit of a pseudo-question. It's a little bit of annoying. It's annoying. He asks a question. It's as if he wants to be recognized for going above and beyond the standard. Verse 21, he says this. He says, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It's as if the disciples are stunned that Jesus is teaching on forgiveness by God and forgiveness of others were interdependent. Here, Peter's question shows concerns about limits and those who would abuse such grace. And so Peter wants definition on the limits of forgiveness. And so as he comes to Jesus, Jesus refuses to grant limits on forgiveness. In fact, the context is very helpful here. Remember, in verses 15 through 20, the context was this. If your brother will not hear you. It was dealing with a sinning brother who won't recognize the sin or will not hear the confrontation. But that is not the case now in our text. This is where context matters. In verses 21 through 35, it's if a brother hears you and he comes and asks for forgiveness. This is the flip side of dealing with interpersonal conflicts and, and wrongs that have been done against the one another's. Peter comes to Jesus and says, what are the limits on forgiveness? You've mentioned if he will not hear, but what if they will hear? And they continue to sin, and then they ask for forgiveness. Then they sin, and they ask for forgiveness. Now, notice Peter's pseudo-question. And the reason I say it's a pseudo-question is he goes ahead and gives a pseudo-answer. He thinks he's knocking it out of the park. Verse 21, notice his suggestion. Like, Jesus, do you need some help with the answer here? Let me give it to you. Up to seven times. Now, maybe to help make sense of this, why Peter is jumping from nowhere to seven, Peter simply says this, in the culture of the day, it was understood in the mindset of the Jews, kind of by our mindset today. You ever heard of three strikes and then you're out? Three strikes and then we're done with you. Sometimes that's not only the rules of baseball, that's how we deal with one another. The limits of our forgiveness is one, two, you better think very carefully, but once number three comes, we're done here, buddy. 
Well, here Peter says, not three. That's the standard of the day. That's the standard of the modern thinking of the Jewish people. In fact, the rabbis interpreting Amos, some passages in the book of Amos a certain way, came up with that this was the idea of God, that, that, that three times was the extent of forgiveness, and beyond three, it's, we're done. Here, Peter feels generous at suggesting seven. But notice with me in the text, verse 22, Jesus responds to this pseudo-question and answer with 70 times seven. Number one, the inquiry. Number two, the instructions that Jesus gives. Christ responds with instructions that would have been astounding to the Jews and his original audience and quite frankly are still hard for us to swallow even today. Here in our text, he front loads his instructions with the cross grain over human wisdom. And notice how Jesus structures his response. Verse 22, Jesus said unto him, I do not say to you. In other words, my standard is not the standard of the day. This, in fact, has been Jesus' pattern throughout the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Here is the negative form of that statement. I do not say to you that that is the righteous standard or that is the standard to follow. And I just want to remind all of us as we consider this doctrine of forgiveness no matter how hard it is no matter how difficult it is Jesus is our authority Jesus is the one who will not only teach us how to forgive he will enable us how to forgive because he has forgiven us notice what Jesus says I am the authority I do not say to you as the rabbis say as the teachers say or as your insights may be Peter then he proceeds number two to give his instructions he does not recognize peter's graciousness in going from three to seven verse 22 but i say unto you seven times uh, 70 times seven this is the high ground of grace this is the standard of god no it's not 490 which is 70 times seven that is not to say at 491 you're then done with forgiving this is superlative language the translation here is this always be ready to forgive 490 means simply this ad infinitum a number beyond what we can count turn with me briefly to luke chapter 17 verse 1 and i want you to see one key word that way help some of you listen better this morning with the question of what if they're not repentant well let's go ahead and answer that Luke chapter 17, verse 1. I just want to take note of how Luke records this in a briefer summary. I'll give you just a second to turn there. Luke 17. The key verse is going to be verse 3, but I want you to begin with me in verse 1. Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that, that no offenses should come. In other words, this is a broken world. This is a Genesis 3 world. It is tainted by sin. It is impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones, speaking of the disciples of Christ. Now notice verse 3. Take heed to yourselves, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. 
Notice here the context here is the person is responsive. They own their sin. They recognize their transgression. They're asking for forgiveness. They're asking for mercy, you could say. Coming back to our text here in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 18. The key to forgiveness is also recognizing, distinguishing between forgiveness and abuse or some type of horrible situation is the person is owning their sin against you. Back to our text in Matthew 18. The illustration that is given by Christ shows this repentance on the part of the wrongdoer. But as we see even in our text, it is a, it's a superficial repentance, isn't it? It's a repentance that has no true change. Number one, the inquiry. Number two, the instructions. Then Jesus brings into play here as he teaches his disciples a parable, a story. And the purpose of this parable is to give a, a very precise point to nail it home, beginning there with verse 23. Verse 23, actually look, look ahead with me to verse 35. Notice what Jesus says in the purpose of this parable. He says this, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is the reason why Jesus is giving this parable. Go back with me now to verse 23. We see this theme of forgiveness in the parable. He says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his, with his servants. Some translations may render it slaves. That may be slightly deceiving in this point. The idea here, historians, commentators tell us that this would be likened to um, a major leader and having designated leaders over certain realms of his kingdom who have access to the treasuries, access to money, access to resources. And this master comes to the lowly servant, someone who is lower down the chain, and finds out that he has extorted the money. Verse 27, then the master of that servant, being moved with compassion, releases him and forgives him of the debt. Here we see very clearly the theme of this parable is, is forgiveness. The debt is forgiven. There's hints of the gospel here very explicitly and implicitly as we think about how hard forgiveness may be for some of you this morning. Just completely tether it to the forgiveness that you have received from God in Christ. It will help you to hear our text rightly and appropriately. In fact, you could say it like this. This text is maybe the quintessential picture of forgiveness. Now we see this man who was forgiven of a great debt. Let's just talk about this debt just very quickly, just for a second. In terms of our vernacular today, we see that the phrases are given here. Verse 24, he began to settle accounts, and one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 being the largest designation of weight, the talents being the, 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 uh, the money that was there. The idea is, is if you do a calculation on it, it would be upwards, some say 75 million in today's dollars, others say higher than that. There was no way that this man could personally repay what he owed. In fact, this man said, please just give me more time, but that's what's laughable. He could never repay what he owed to his, his master. And friends, I just want to he stop here just for a second and just remind us of the gospel. Turn with me just very briefly to Romans chapter 3 as we make a parallel to our crimes and our debts against God. Very similarly, as Paul lays down the facts of the law, the good news of the gospel, be reminded 
of our sin against an infinitely holy God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages that we owe to God for our sin only bring about the wrath of God and death. Romans chapter 3 reminds us of the comprehensiveness of our rebellion in, in our father Adam. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, that there is none righteous, no not one. Notice how crushing this is. Notice how comprehensive this debt that we owe to a thrice holy God is. You cannot repay the sin debt that you owe to a holy God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Jump down to verse 14. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How do you summarize lost, unregenerate man's posture against, a holiness, against the holiness of God? There is no fear of God before eyes their eyes. Paul summarizes it over in chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right here in the very middle of this message, I just want you to know there's nothing you could do to ever earn God's mercy or grace, his favor. In fact, it wouldn't be grace. Grace that we experience, undeserving free grace that we receive from God, is something that we do not deserve. It's God giving to us what is not owed to us. It's grace. Just, it's the most beautiful word maybe in all the English language. Just, say, just do me a favor and let's just say the, the word grace together. Ready? Grace. It's the name of our church. Grace Community Church. And may God, we often say, help us to live up to that name. Grace, extending grace to those who don't deserve it because we were once those who did not deserve it. God's mercy is his withholding of the wrath that we do deserve. God's mercy and God's grace. As we look at this man, going back to Matthew chapter 18, what did this man in this parable deserve? He deserves wrath. He deserves what we would say is what is justly due him. Not something of injustice, this is justice. He deserves the punishment that was rightly due. The standard of the day was if you could not repay your debts, they would get whatever cents on the dollar they could in the selling of you and your possessions into the prison. They would get something on the debt. It wouldn't touch this debt. We get that. But the selling of this man and his family, his children, his wife, and his possessions, the liquidation that represents their lives would be something as opposed to nothing. Here we see this man humbled to the dust. And what does he do in our text? Going back to Matthew chapter 18, he can't pay. Verse 25, he was not able to pay. His master commanded him that he be sold, his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment be made. And the servant fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me 
and I will pay you all. Listen, this man is asking for what he cannot deliver on. Not in a million lifetimes, if he had three jobs in this day, could he pay back the debt? That If he never went to sleep and worked you know, 24 hours around the clock, he'd never be able to pay this debt, but that's what he's asking to do. Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Verse 27, but what does the master do? Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, and he released him, and he gave him the debt. That's a key statement there. The forgiveness comes from the master because he was moved with compassion. He withheld the wrath and the judgment and the rightful punishment that was due to the man. That's called mercy. And he gave him grace, which he did not deserve. That's what we just defined. Friends, this is amazing. This is otherworldly, by the way. This doesn't come naturally. This comes by the Spirit of God, by the love of God in Christ. And this parable is given for Jesus as he teaches us, as he shows us. It shows us the heart of God. But then notice, inexplicably, this man turns around and he does something that boggles our mind. He goes and finds someone who owes him not a bazillion dollars, but someone who owes him, we estimate, to be about a hundred days worth of pay. Notice the text there. But he went out, verse 28. And he went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. It was estimated that a denarii would represent a day's pay. A hundred denarii representing a hundred days pay. Certainly a sizable amount. But compared to what his debt that was just canceled, nothing. Nothing. And he goes out and he assaults his fellow friend, his fellow servant. He grabs him by the throat and he demands of him. You can almost hear him with clenched teeth saying, pay me what you owe. Friends, such a scenario is mind-boggling. We cannot fathom it as Jesus gives it to us. It doesn't make sense. I would just tell you this. We're made in the image of God and our hearts are moved as we think about being having such a huge debt, an insurmountable debt canceled, wiped clean, were moved by his compassion in the same way that the master was moved with compassion. We are moved with compassion as we simply read the account. We find ourselves getting angry at the injustice of the man who has just been forgiven, going and wrapping his hands around the throat of a fellow man for pennies, for pennies. This man's actions though hit close to home. For many of us, we struggle with forgiveness. In fact, I want to ask you a question this morning. For some of you, there are people in your life that you've even said, I cannot forgive them. You've said that. And if you haven't said it, you've felt it. You've wrestled with it in your heart. And I just want you to hear me. Let the word of God condemn you or or, or speak to you this morning. Do not hear your pastor as overly trying to condemn you this morning. But we're just talking about the plain facts of truth, of the plain facts of the situation. You have felt it, you've said it, and you've said, I cannot forgive them. Or worse, I will not forgive that person. That's inexcusable. This man had been forgiven, but he would not forgive. We see that this forgiveness was horrific unkind, unreasonable, unfitting for the mercy that he had just received. In fact, it was unrealistic. Notice in the text there, 
He went and threw this very man into the prison until he could repay the debt. He can't repay the debt if he's in prison. It's impossible, but that's the way debtors' prisons worked. It's hard to imagine our mind around someone who could be so hardened, so ugly on the inside, so calloused, so heartless. And yet for many, this text describes your heart. It describes your life. Jesus didn't make up the story out of thin air. He gave it because sometimes stories, things, truth given in parabolic form or story form, wrap us up and speak to us in a way that uh, captures us and speaks to us the very recesses of our hearts. Well, here's the context of Matthew 18. Jesus' disciples forgive one another up to three times that may be the world standard it was the standard of the world in peter's and the disciples day up to seven times no again and again and again and again i'm gonna ask you a question how often do you need god's forgiveness how many times in the past week Brothers and sisters, did you find yourself saying, God, forgive me? Let's just take it a little bit closer to home. The, the scriptures are very clear that there are sins that we call presumptuous sins. The psalmist, the language of the psalmist describes the categories of sin like presumptuous sins or besetting sins. We don't want to give credence to these sins more than what they deserve, but we recognize the fact that sometimes there are generational sins. Sometimes there are sins we see modeled in our parents. We've seen uh, modeled in 10 different ways and because they've not been mortified because they came most naturally to our unredeemed flesh and we've seen plenty of, of object lessons for them. We find ourselves repeating these very sins in our own life to a point to where we confess them, we deal with them, but we call them besetting sins. You know what I'm talking about? How many times have you asked the Lord to forgive you of that besetting sin that is your particular struggle? Has it ever been more than seven times in a particular day? I'm sure. In the same way that God in Christ forgives us, we are to forgive one another. We've exposited the text. I want us now to consider, in closing, just some points to ponder, some application points that I pray the Holy Spirit will take to the next level in our hearts and minds. Number one, who do you need to forgive? As I said a moment ago, I have no doubt there are people here this morning who've uttered those statements, I will never forgive them. I can't forgive them. I won't forgive them. Friends, who do you need to forgive today? Who is the Holy Spirit bringing to your mind and yet you will, and yet you will not? Hear the teaching of Scripture this morning that God's people a forgiven people, forgive. I'm going to say that again. A forgiven people who have confessed their sins and called upon the name of the Lord, who believed in their hearts and confessed with their mouths, their lives have been changed, who enjoy the benefits of the transforming grace of God in the gospel. A forgiven people evidence that in the forgiveness that they give. 
In fact, forgiveness is more than a singular act. I think we think of it as, I've done that before and I just can't do it anymore. Friends, this is not a a singular act. It is a, a way of life. As disciples of Jesus, forgiveness and mercy and grace, because we have received such, is the fragrance of our lives. And while we're worried about being trampled on and run down and pushed over and abused and all that, and do not hear the worst forms of what I'm saying. There is, I'm not saying anybody needs to submit to abuse or any of those things and just be in a cyclical cycle of abuse and then forgiveness. Remove yourself from harm, no doubt about it. But as you're struggling through the process of forgiveness, just remember this. The fragrance of the Christian's life, the way of a Christian's life is is forgiveness. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. And while you're turning there, I just want to reason with you. We know this is true. What is a marriage but two amazing forgivers? Can there be a marriage that can stand for a decade or two decades or three decades that is not made up of two amazing wonderfully loving forgivers of one another you know the answer to this what is it no there can't be a gracious god-centered marriage christ-centered marriage gospel-centered marriage where the husband and the wife are not loving one another serving one another and forgiving one another even when it is so hard forgiven people forgive ephesians 4 32 be ye kind and be kind to one another the the King James scripture in my memory, and be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians now, Colossians chapter 3, if you'll turn there briefly. This is the aroma of our lives, friends. How do you be kind when they're not kind? How do you do that? You all know, you work with people who are not kind. You work with people who are rude, brutal, backstabbing. You may have people in your family like that. The Holy Spirit can give the analogies and prompt your hearts and spirits. Again, this is how you shine as lights in a dark world. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, that means patience, forbearing, absorption. The idea is is we're long-suffering towards one another. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also must you do. Remember, the context here in Matthew 18 is that there is process. There are rules for the family. We've touched at that. So it's understanding that this is the personal affection of the heart towards those to whom we need to share this with. A forgiven child of God in their spirit is one of love and forgiveness. In fact, one commentator said this, you are never more like your heavenly father than when you forgive someone who has wronged you. Amen. And we looked at that. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In fact, you could describe it like this. This is the glory of the new covenant. Hebrews 8, 12, I'll just read it to you. It says this, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that he says, the giving of a new and a new covenant. So number one, who do you need to forgive? May the Lord, by his Spirit, 
prompts your heart, your memory. Now, what is a forgiving spirit? Secondly, what is a forgiving spirit? It is one that cancels the debt. It means to forgive fully. It means that we learn by the grace of God as we meditate upon our own forgiveness, our relationship of being reconciled to God in Christ, we learn how to give and forgive fully and completely. I want to add a note here. You need to learn how to ask for forgiveness as well. There's two sides to this coin. One is the forgiving, but the other one is to learn how to properly and rightfully ask for forgiveness. And it's not this, sorry. Parents, you understand what this is like. It can be so frustrating trying to teach your children these things. And you pray for them, and you pray that they mean it, and you pray that the Holy Spirit teaches them these things. There may be nothing more annoying than the world when you have a child bleeding in the dirt, and the other one's like, sorry. You could tell it's not meaningful, it's not heartfelt. I'm not picking on any particular children in the room this morning, but you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We need the grace of God and the Spirit of God to teach us to humble ourselves, to ask for forgiveness. Friends, learn to humble yourself. Admit your sin. Learn to ask for forgiveness humbly. Don't make excuses for your sin. Own it. And ask the person or the party that you have sinned against to forgive you of your sin and how you've hurt them. Apologize genuinely and as meaningfully as you possibly can. I'm speaking to the church this morning. I want to remind you of this. If you have been changed by the gospel as you say you've been changed, if you've asked the Lord God to forgive you, you can ask the other members of the family of God to forgive you as well. There are many people who profess to be Christians and yet... You will never find them ever owning anything. Learn to ask for forgiveness. It's hard. It's difficult, no doubt about it. But we must, we must do it. Another point I want to give to you very briefly is this. Our forgiveness is never isolated. Excuse me, our unforgiveness is never isolated simply just to us. And I want to pull this out by having you go back to our text in Matthew 18. Look there with me in verse 31. Many people think that this is just my precious, as Gollum in the Lord of the Rings says about the ring. This is just my thing. This is my precious. And as he holds on to this thing, it absolutely dissipates the health and vitality of his life. And many people hold on to their unforgiveness and their bitterness. And they think of it as, as a secret treasure of just their own heart. But friends, I want to tell you, no man is an island unto himself. In fact, as we see in this text... This man's unforgiveness to his fellow friend or servant, peer, was evidenced and witnessed by many. Verse 31, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. They were the ones who came and told their master all that had been done. As you consider just with me for a moment the effect of not granting forgiveness, do not be deceived into thinking that it's just your sin. You may say, I get it. I get that I'm supposed to forgive, but I won't, I won't, will not, but it's just my sin. It's not just your sin. It affects everything and everyone around you. It was evidenced and witnessed by others in the life of this parable, this individual. The writer of Hebrews says this as well, Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But notice here, 
looking diligently, looking carefully, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Parents, listen, if you do not deal with your past, it'll affect your children in ways that it never should. You think of situations, you think of things that you say, I will not, I cannot forgive. And whether you realize it or not, you pass that spirit on generationally, sometimes to the second, third, and fourth generation. Now, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't get victory over sin because your grandfather did. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's mirrored, it's modeled, and it's repeated. It's mirrored, it's modeled, it's repeated. You say dumb things like, well, we're the Jones family, and I hope there's nobody here named the Jones, but we're the Jones family, and sometimes we get angry, and when we get angry, we break stuff. Well, next thing you know, little Junior says, well, we're the Jones family, and sometimes we get angry, and when we get angry, we, we break stuff. Third, fourth generation, well, we're the Jones family, and because we're the Jones family, sometimes we get angry. Where, where is this coming from? It's being discipled. It's being modeled, and you go back to the line long enough, and you say, where did this start? It all got started because Grandpa got his feelings hurt. Friends, that's what Hebrews 12, 14 is talking about. The root of bitterness that comes from unforgiveness that causes many to become defiled. Parents, just remember this. Your actions speak louder than words. And what you do speaks so loudly, your children or your grandchildren cannot hear what you are, what you're saying. May the Lord, by his grace, remind us of the power of the gospel that can make dead sinners come to life, can equip us to forgive those whom we need to forgive, those who've maliciously hurt, those who've intentionally hurt, May Grace Church be full of redeemed, forgiven sinners who can say with Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, as Joseph looked his brothers in the face against those who sold him into slavery, all because they were jealous of him. And may Grace Church be full of the testimony of Joseph, who was able to look their, his abusers in that sense in the face and say, what you meant for evil... God meant for good. And friend, I just want to close with this. See the grace of God and God's purposes. May he give you a view that you would not otherwise have, that what men mean for evil, he is able to use and redeem for good in your life. That may make you mad. I won't be surprised if it does. I won't be surprised if it makes some of you mad. But that's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for us. As we center ourselves upon the gospel, we are those who owe a righteous and holy God a debt that we could never pay, that we could never afford, as we just sang this morning. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this speaks to the heart, this text speaks to the very heart of our struggle as disciples of Jesus. And Father, I confess before you this morning, it is easier to preach this than to live it. Father, by your grace, would you help me to live the very message that I preached this morning? Would you help our church to live this very message in the lives that you've called us to live? Father, as a pastor shepherd, I want to pray over those who are just ripped apart even now. They're thinking of
conversations. They're thinking of assaults. They're thinking of uh, lawsuits. They're thinking of all kinds of things, harsh words from parents, just different things, Lord, that have scarred them, hurt them. Father, I pray that you would show them their need to wipe the slate clean. As they have been forgiven by God in Christ, would you give them the grace to in turn forgive those who have hurt, hurt them. Father, we will commit them to your care. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.